Evening, everyone. My name is uh, Josh, for those who don't know me. So I recently got married. Uh, most of you probably know my wife, Leah. I've learned a lot in the 10 months that we've been married. For example, I've learned that if I leave the dishes long enough, they magically disappear. <laughs> or I've learned that there is no such thing as too many indoor plants. In particular, though, I've learned that the answer is ice cream. If you're not feeling well, if you had a tough day, or if it rained on dry washing, the answer is ice cream. Now, truth be told, I'm actually not having a go at Leah, because ice cream is the answer, is a running joke between us. I do want to ask you, though, where do you turn when things aren't good? When you can't see a way out of what's going on, where do you turn? When you're surrounded by difficult circumstances, where do you turn? Let me phrase it this way. Despite our circumstances, how are we to live? I want to put it to you that the answer is looking upwards with God as our joy and our strength. Tonight we'll be looking at Habakkuk chapter 3. So why don't you turn with me there now? If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. I want to give us a bit of an, of an overview of this passage before we dive in. When we read the passage earlier, thanks Abby for stumbling through those lovely names, I'm sure the part that caught your attention was right at the end where Habakkuk declares his joy and strength comes from God. But before we get to that bit, I want to look through the rest of the chapter with you. So two weeks ago we had Ollie speak to us on verses 1 and 2, Habakkuk's plea to God for a revival. Now tonight, let's start by looking at verses 3 to 15. In verses 3 to 15, Habakkuk is recounting the exit of the Israelites from Egypt under the command of Moses, with God's presence going with them and his acts of strength going before. Habakkuk is remembering the deliverance that God gave his people. But rewind a step further. Why did the Israelites need to leave Egypt? I mean... We know the, the Egyptians were an oppressive nation who had enslaved the Israelites. But why is the exodus of the Israelites relevant to Habakkuk? Or even better, why is it relevant to us today? Let's look at Habakkuk's recount of the events and we'll start to get a clear picture of what's going on. Let's first look at the presence of God with his people during their exit from Egypt. Read verse 3 and 4 with me. God came from Timon and the Holy One from, the Mount, from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. What's described here isn't the only time in the Bible that this event is referred to. It's actually a reference to God giving the Israelites Ten Commandments. Let me paraphrase a chain of events for you. The nation of Israel leaves Egypt. Three months after leaving, Moses goes up Mount Sinai to receive God's instruction and God comes down on Mount Sinai in, in the form of fire, lightning and smoke. What follows from there is the giving of the Ten Commandments through Moses to the people of Israel. But why is Habakkuk talking about this now? Why are we looking at it? 
I think what's significant to Habakkuk is that God was present. He was present in a physical, tangible way in the form of fire. God's presence with the Israelites is a reminder to his people that he was there with them. God came down in power and glory, and this account had been passed down through the generations. Verse 2 of chapter 3. I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk knew that the God who descended on Mount Sinai was the same God that he served, that the people of Israel were God's chosen people, and that God's presence was extended to him as a descendant of Israel. So if God was present, what was his presence signifying? Why did God need to be there? What was the aim of God's intervention on behalf of the Israelites? Look with me in chapter 3, verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. What we see here is the intent of God. We see that God went out for the salvation of his people. His intent is to go before the Israelites, to provide salvation in the physical sense of delivering his people from the hand of enemies in battle. Once again, if we turn back to what the Israelites were experiencing, why was this necessary? So the Israelites have left Egypt under God's guidance and are led to the land God had promised them upon the exit of Egypt, the land of Canaan. Problem is that there were people already living in the land, Canaanites. And naturally, the Canaanites didn't want to just give the Israelites their homeland. Despite God promising the land of Canaan to the Israelites, it didn't mean that the land would be vacant, ready for a new tenant. But what we see here is God's purpose for his dealings with Israel in the Old Testament, and it was ultimately for their salvation. Everything in the account of the exodus of the Israelites points toward the intervention of God for the better of his people. Habakkuk has just recounted a number of the interventions of God for his people. So let's take a look at those events and the power of God in his salvation of his people. Verse 5 of chapter 3. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. Such a simple sentence, and it's so easy to miss what that's actually talking about. So easy to miss the true power that's conveyed. It's actually referring to the ten plagues that inflicted the Egyptians right before the Israelites left Egypt for the promised land of Canaan. Why would God send plagues? Well, Pharaoh wouldn't allow the Israelites to leave Egypt. They were his slaves. He instructed that they were to remain his slaves. And so God sent these plagues with the instruction through Moses to let my people go. The list of plagues that God sent is pretty significant. We have the water turned to blood, plague of frogs, plague of lice, plague of flies, pestilence on livestock, plague of boils, plague of hail, plague of locusts, continual darkness for three days, and death of the firstborn. I actually have a vivid childhood memory of that last one, when I first learned about those plagues in particular, especially the death of the firstborn. So when we were kids, 
Uh, my parents used to have family devotions after dinner. In fact, they still do. If you go around their house for dinner, Saturday steak night, um, you, you'll get inv- invited to devotions after as well. In this instance, when I was a kid, probably six, seven years old, Dad actually got out the red paint and I can remember him going to the doorway of the study and painting the house. I can remember Mum's face too. Uh, but, but that memory is stuck with me. Why did Dad paint the house red though? Dad was actually showing what God had told the Israelites, that every Israelite house was needed to be painted with the blood of a lamb over the door frame, the, the lintel, and the angel of death would pass over and the household would be spared from the death of their firstborn child. Egyptian houses, without this symbolism, the angel of death would not pass over and the firstborn would be killed. It was this plague, the the last plague that God sent, that convinced Pharaoh to let my people go. Now that festival of the Passover was celebrated by the Israelites until New Testament times to remember and praise God for the deliverance of his people. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway from these plagues is that they were all sent by God upon the Egyptians to convince Pharaoh to allow God's chosen people, the Israelites, to leave Egypt. The intervention of God was for the salvation of his people, deliverance through the power of God. So let's look at the next display of God's power. Read the start of verse 6 with me. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. So I mentioned before that the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised them, but that it was inhabited by existing nations. So for the Israelites to begin living in Canaan, the Israelites would have to fight for the land. If we look through the account of the Israelites, when they're entering and claiming the promised land, we see that there are many nations that God led the Israelite to victory against. Let me read a couple of selected verses from the book of Joshua of that account. So God is speaking to Joshua, and in Joshua 1 verse 2, God says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then in verse 9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We see that God has promised his leadership, strength and his power to go before the Israelites. God promises that no one shall stand before that nation. The power of God is such that whatever nation opposes the Israelites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, God went before them and delivered them into the hand of the Israelites. So let's keep looking through the recount of Habakkuk showing the power of God. Verse 8, we read, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? So this is a reference to the parting of the Red Sea. 
What's that? It's an event again showing the power of God. Let me explain from a bit of a paraphrase from Exodus chapter 14. So the Israelites have left Egypt and they're on their way to Canaan. The Egyptians are in pursuit. I mean, their slaves had up and left. It's probably expected that they're going to pursue. So as the Egyptians are closing in, the Israelites arrive at the Red Sea and need to continue on but have no immediate passage. So let me pick up the story and read some for you. The Israelites are in despair, but Moses, their leader, speaks in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And a little bit further down, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, so the waters being a wall to them on their left hand and on their right. Continues on. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What a salvation! God's power is on display here, not just for the Israelites, but also for Habakkuk to recount and for you and I to marvel. Such a simple statement in Habakkuk's recount, but contains an amazing display of God's power and salvation for his people. Are you beginning to get the picture? Habakkuk is recounting the story of God's continual presence with the Israelites and his power being on display time and time again for the salvation of his people. So, where does Habakkuk's recount of the Exodus of Egypt end? Read verse 16 with me. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk has finished his account of the deliverance of the Israelites from the Egyptians and now he's back in his own reality. He's once again reminded of the sound of the persecution that he's living in. We've heard in the few weeks previous that the Chaldeans are his oppressors. Habakkuk has a physical reaction to the oppression of his reality. How does he resolve himself though? We just read it. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. What a statement of faith. How easy would it have been for Habakkuk to simply focus on his reality at the time? Instead, he looks to God for deliverance. 
I want to ask you, how often do we focus on the problem, what to do about it, and not on our God to deliver? I know I do. There's nothing I love more than to fix it. Ask my wife. Actually, no, don't, because she'll probably tell you about the time that I deliberately broke the handle off one of her dishes to fix it better because I didn't believe that the handle would stay on when the dish was full of food. Or I'll buy something off Gumtree that's busted because it's a bargain and I'm going to fix it. What I really love, though, is fixing cars. I've owned a bunch of either old or rubbish cars, or old and rubbish, actually. (laughs) I even had my old classic car blow the head gasket the day before my wedding. Thanks, Carl, for stepping in at that time. It was meant to be the bridal car the very next day. I fixed that car since and sold it, but yet I keep driving old cars. I think part of it is because it's just so satisfying and self-gratifying to fix something. I have to be real with you, though. When it comes to a life situation, a tricky state of affairs, or something not going my way, I so often do the same thing. I try and fix it. I often try and fix it even before bringing the problem to God in prayer. I'd like to ask if you do the same. Is it your current job that's really making each day a struggle? Perhaps it's a tough relationship with your family, your friends, your partner. Perhaps it's a financial situation that's beating you down. Whatever it is, do you trust in God for his deliverance? Or do you try and fix it? Take a leaf out of Habakkuk's book. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Man, I've got to take that on board. He's waiting on God to fix it. I'd really encourage you too to trust in the God who is infinitely more powerful than you and I, who has your best interests at heart. As Habakkuk recounted, God is able to intervene God has intervened for his people and he again can intervene for you. I want to move into Habakkuk's last part of the last part of Habakkuk's song. So look at verse 17 with me. Just excuse me for a minute. This is a lot of talking for an introvert. So verse 17. I'm sure that this is the part that caught your attention when we read it earlier, but let's read it again together. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Did that get your attention? Though the fig tree should not blossom, though there be no fruit on the vine, though the olive tree produces no fruit, though the fields do not yield, though the flocks are cut off from the fold and there is no livestock in the stalls. Habakkuk doesn't make light of his situation. He describes a situation which is pretty dire, a severe famine, 
lack of livelihood. And in the verse before, he described the oppression under the Chaldeans. Habakkuk doesn't negate his situation, but instead he gives us a pattern, an example of looking through our situation to God who can save, the God who can deliver. Habakkuk doesn't get caught up in his miserable circumstances. He doesn't become angry. He doesn't curse God. Think for a moment how you might react in a comparable situation. I know the temptation for me would become despondent and maybe distance myself from God. I'm not standing here tonight before you as someone who's got it all all together. Let me tell you about a time when I reacted in exactly that way despondent, frustrated, but let me tell you how God is even greater and how he has grown me since. Some of you may know this story um, if you've known me for a while. Um, It was a long time ago, it was back in year 12, and (laughs) all I did in my spare time, or probably even my school time, was play sport. didn't matter what it was. I mean, high jump and basketball were really the things that I was um, more into, but I would play cricket, soccer. I, I'd never touched a soccer ball in my life when I went to play soccer. It didn't matter what the sport was, I was up for it. And so that was my whole of year 10, year 11, the start of year 12. And then at the start of year 12, I broke my foot. I was playing basketball at the time, which is ironic, but there was no more sport for me. Um, it was a pretty bad break. I was in a moon boot for three months. I reacted really badly. I was irritable, I was frustrated, I was angry, I pushed people away. And I took it out on those who were around me and felt as though it wasn't possible to change how I felt at the time. But during that time, I stumbled across a Bible verse, John 16, verse 33. Let me read it to you. Jesus is speaking, In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. God used that verse to speak to me. Jesus is outright telling you and I that we will have trouble. And immediately after, what does he say? He says, I have overcome the world. Jesus is bigger than what you're going through. He has power over your situation. You might be sitting there thinking, but Josh, you just broke your foot. My situation is way worse. You don't know what what I've got going on. And you're right, I don't. Instead, let me turn you to Habakkuk in his famine, his oppression, and his hopelessness. What does Habakkuk do in his circumstance? Instead of focusing on his situation, he looks through his situation to God. Do we ignore our circumstances to be happy? No. But is there a God who is greater than our circumstances? who deserves our praise despite what's going on. What does this mean, though? What does it look like to look through your situation to God? Let's look at the next couple of verses in Habakkuk. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The God of my salvation. What have we spent a fair bit of time looking at tonight? The salvation that God has delivered time and time again for his people, the Israelites. He is the God of salvation. Habakkuk's joy is well-founded. His joy is not placed in a foundationless hope, but rather in a God 
who has shown that Israel are his people, and he has gone before them, gone to battle on their behalf, made a way where there was no way. But what does it mean to rejoice in God? That's what Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Is joy only something that you see in movies? Or perhaps when the sun's shining and you've got time off work? Quite the opposite. Paul, the apostle, talks a lot about joy in the book of Philippians. But do you know where Paul wrote the book of Philippians from? He wrote it from jail. So how can Paul say in Philippians 3 verse 1 to rejoice in the Lord? Paul gives us an answer in verse 20 of chapter 3. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Like Habakkuk, Paul was able to rejoice because he was looking upwards out of his situation, from the jail he was in. He was rejoicing in the salvation promised to him by his God. Like Paul, like Habakkuk, we take joy by looking to the salvation our God has promised. For those who trust him and have accepted Jesus as their saviour, we know that one day we will be lifted from our situation and we will be with God in heaven. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. We belong with God. Our circumstances are temporary and one day Jesus Christ will transform us to be like his glorious body. So the challenge is not to fix our situation, to escape from our circumstances that have us down. Instead, just like Habakkuk, just like Paul, we take the joy in the news that God is a God of salvation. We take hope in the transformation that awaits. We look forwards to our place in heaven we look upwards to him and give thanks to the future salvation we have. I put it to you, with that perspective, troubles and struggles will be reframed. The promise of God's salvation lifts us above our circumstances. Look with me at verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let me emphasize that. It says, God is my strength. Habakkuk doesn't say, God gives me strength. He says, God is his strength. Habakkuk recognizes that without God, he's nothing. He adds nothing of his own. But what does that actually mean? Let me read a little bit from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength a very present help in, in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God's strength is knowledge that God is with us, a help in time of trouble, a refuge and a resolve, an ability to trust God and not fear. Habakkuk is able to move forward 
through the strength that God embodies with him. He makes no pretense of being able to soldier on himself. Habakkuk is joyous in the salvation that God gives, looking upwards out of his situation, trusting God for guidance. God is Habakkuk's strength in the face of the famine, the strength in the opposition he faces. So what do we learn from the last few verses? Habakkuk is surrendering himself to God and saying, God, you know my circumstances. You know my difficulties. But God, I trust you. I trust your continual presence is with me. I trust in the promise of your salvation. I look back to your display of power and salvation. And once again, God, I look to you for my deliverance. God, I look to you for my strength and guidance. God, I need you to lift me up. So, despite our circumstances, how are we to live? Once again, let me put it to you that you and I can have this attitude of looking upwards to God despite our circumstances. Look through your situation to God. Give glory to God in awe of his past deliverance and the salvation that Jesus freely offers to you and I. Rejoice in this salvation. Trust in his strength. Look forward to the future transformation to glory, the salvation that awaits. Will you join me in praying a statement of surrender? Pray with me now. God, we look to you. We look back to the salvation that you delivered for your people time and time again. God, we ask that you would grant us the ability to look upwards from our troubles and instead to rejoice in the salvation you give. Lord, we thank you for your strength in us that allows us to continue on. Lord, we look forward to the transformation where, you, where we will meet you, our Saviour. God, we praise you for your deliverance and we surrender our circumstances to you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.